So very early on, I got very interested in building different ways and to really change the living environment for us humans, because a building actually in a way should be operating like we do. I'm interested in that balance between creativity and spontaneity and actually something that's more mapped out to really unlock and find out, you know, the parameters of design and what that actually means throughout that design process. From NYC by Design, this is The Mic, a podcast that offers an inside look into New York City's most creative minds. I'm your host, Debbie Millman. Tune in each month as I engage in conversations exploring projects, products, and inspirations driving New York City's innovative design community. This year, the mic is exploring design for sharing. We're uncovering new ways for creatives to share space, materials, resources, ideas, processes, and inspiration, all while being physically apart. Each month, we listen to your stories, and then I get to talk design with two inspiring guests. Want to be featured on the next episode of The Mic? Visit nycbydesign.com to tell us your design story. During today's show, I'll speak with two innovative New York designers to discuss how the environments we shape directly impact the well-being of ourselves and our communities, and that through creative collaboration and care, we can build a future that nurtures wellness, serenity, and health for all. First, let's meet Winka Doubledam, a seasoned academic and design leader and founder of Architectonics, a research-based design practice that works on multiple scales, spanning from cities to buildings to design objects. Before we dive in to speak with Winka, let's hear a bit about the innovative projects she's led with Architectonics. Our office has been known for highly innovative designs that are sustainable, intelligence, and economic. We combine latest digital tools with holistic and philosophical approach to make us one of the leading teams in the field of visionary architecture kind of shown in the winning design for the Asian Games 2022, 116-acre eco-park. Winko, welcome. What inspired the founding of Architectonics? Oh, wow, simple question to start with. (laughs) We always just dive right in. (laughs) Well, to be honest, the founding of Architectonics really happened when I got a project. Uh, I was working for Eisman, uh, Peter Eisman in New York at the time and uh, um, had had a small exhibit and uh, one of the people who bought one of the pieces was a gallery owner. And when I met her later, she realized I was an architect and asked me to design her gallery, which was strange. So um, it was a moment where I was like, ah, I guess I should quit my job and uh, start an office. And I literally looked in the Webster's Dictionary under architecture and found architectonics, which means the science of architecture. And I I really thought it was important not to use my name because I feel architecture is teamwork. That's why I chose it. I love the fact that it's teamwork and that's how it happened. And how does your work at the firm connect with your academic work at the University of Pennsylvania? 
So early on, I realized there are two ways to start a practice. One was get all the work you can and make a lot of money or try and get as much money as you can. The other one is to really understand it as um, I studied a long time. I want to work on the things I'm interested in and go a little bit slower and find something else to make money in. So originally, that's what I chose. I thought I have studied forever. I studied uh, sculpture before architecture also. And uh, let me just take the route I want to go. And then by chance, I got an offer to teach at Columbia two years after I graduated myself from there uh, with Ben van Bakkel and did that with Ben, which was lots of fun. And then stayed in academics and started to realize it really is for me kind of uh, also uh, the kind of intellectual and, and practice side are really great collaborators for me personally to work. So I love the combination. Did your academic study in sculpture influence how you approached architecture? Well, it kind of limited <laughs> in the sense that I can't think flat, which is very unusual for uh, an architect. You know, most architects think in floor plans and elevations. I don't. I think in space. I think in 3D volumes. I literally, it takes me a long time to get a plan out of that. Um, so I'm quite, I guess you could say a restricted designer in a way. So also I say a specialist as opposed to restricted. <laughs> Well, it, it meant that when computers came into play, which was really early for me in like, I think, 89, uh, I immediately was on computers designing 3D because that was the, the crutch I needed. And at what point did you start thinking about wellness design and health and design and how has that navigated your work today? I think that happened because, you know, I realized early on that working in New York as well, the offices I chose also, uh, were extremely stressful and uh, and so in the beginning, I started working out a lot and trying to get the stress out of my system. Then I started meditating with a group of friends with a Buddhist monk. Uh, and we would uh, in turns cook for him and, and have meditation with him. That, that was kind of how I balanced it, you know, the stress myself. And then what started to happen is uh, a friend of mine uh, decided to make a massive change in his career from fashion to wellness and uh, started asking my advice on how to create a new concept for meditation, a space or spaces. And, and so I ended up designing his space, which is called Inkscape in New York City. But we designed it very much as something that could roll out over the, the years in many locations. So it's made prefab and we have a little manual on how to build things locally. How would you describe the relationship between health and the built environment? How involved with each other or impacted by each other are they? Yeah, it might be because I'm European, but I always felt that being being green or sustainable or use lead as a tool is kind of a, an obligation we all have. So I never really advertise that we do that because I feel we should all do it. But that's maybe a kind of a not the right approach. But anyway, that's how we do it. We tend to work with locally sourced materials, recycled or renewable materials. And a lot of our buildings have skins that are layered so that we can use passive cooling and passive heating to reduce energy costs, but also to make the environment for the people living in the building or working in the building much more pleasurable. 
And, and we think that's a fun challenge, you know. So we have often strange trellises that move and have little motors that help adjust things. And um, we tend to like, you know, work with scientists and, and researchers. So we go usually a little bit further out of the boundaries than most people would. You speak about a highly optimized design approach to elevate our everyday lives. And I'm really interested in that. Can you elaborate a little bit on what that is? Yeah, I think what we often don't realize is there is something called the sick building syndrome that is sadly not completely gone, but it is a compilation of the wrong carpet, the wrong lighting, no natural ventilation, static pressure because of air conditioning, polluted ducts from air conditioning. I mean, it's a, it's a sad list. I did that research actually very early on for while well, I was doing I was still an intern for one of my bosses and got in, quite in shock to realize that we are all sitting in these kind of buildings and that that's what we do every day, right? And that's how we breathe and that's how we live. So very early on, I got very interested in building different ways and to really change the living environment for us humans because a building actually in a way should be operating like we do it should ventilate it should sleep sleep <laughs> yeah lights you know this is the other thing that's so beautiful you go in europe at night everything is dark 10 o'clock offices go out everything goes out here everything is on all the time it's so crazy and there's no one in the building right especially you know the last year but yeah, it should, a building should operate like a human body. And if it does, then it also means it works well with your human body. And so we like to study that and see how we can make it as much as possible a natural organism. You have so many exciting projects that you've worked on and are working on. I want to talk to you about a couple. Can you tell us about creating an alternative reality at your housing community project at Seaview in Staten Island? And, and some of the thought process behind it. Yeah, I thought that was a really sweet question. It was actually very touching. It was very much based on, let's say someone in your family gets seriously ill, ALS, Alzheimer's, uh, something like that, no? And they need permanent uh, medical help. Most of the time you get separated from your family member. And this client was very interested in creating a healthy living community where the, the core of it is for people like that. So there are apartments that are designed to have medical assistance, but that are definitely designed to also have your partner, even your kids there, if, if that's what you choose to do. Um, so that whole center is, everything is electrical. There are no cars. We have farmers create healthy food, so it's not just farm-to-table restaurants, it's actually farm-to-table supermarket, I guess, or food markets. And the whole idea is really based on that principle. It has equine therapy, it has a lot of fitness, it has doctors, physiotherapists, it has an assisted living community building. So for people who don't have family but still want to be part of this larger family. So it's very... It's like bringing social life back into something that is not a positive thing, but helping to create, recreate it as a positive thing. And then, but then there's also normal housing. So we didn't want it to be this isolation uh, principle. So there is, I think, a million square foot of actually pretty normal uh, housing that is interwoven with it. So it's not like a stamp, okay, if you're not well, you're there. 
No, it's like you're here to get well. And if you're interested in healthy living in general, you don't want, you know, cars polluting your air and you want fresh food and you want whatever, you can also live there. So it's a very, I thought it was a, such a touching question. It's a, it's a developer friend of mine. And uh, so it was amazing. And then the site is incredible. It's uh, an old tuberculosis uh, hospital from uh, the 30s that is sitting on a hill in Staten Island. Very beautiful views. The very Baroque layout uh, that we just restored where there were missing pieces like teeth, like we added little missing pieces. And then the, the new parts are completely modern, but they're because it's a amazing topography. They're like almost like hillside housing that are very stacked like villas. So, and I'm saying villa is not expensive, you know, it's just because it is stacked, <laughs> it's ending up like that. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a fabulous project. And then I also would love to hear more about NYC 2106 and how that could aid the residents of us New Yorkers. Yeah, that was a very funny story. So that's, um, I think it was the History Channel who asked 10 New Yorkers, New York architects, 10 LA, 10 Chicago architects to make proposals for the city of the future. You had three days. So they announced it a few weeks before, but they didn't tell you what it was. It was like, do you want it or not? It's like, sure. And then in three days, you had to make a proposal for the city of the future. You had to put an exhibit together in Grand Central Station, and you would meet with the governor, the mayor, uh, the AIA, and city planning, I think, something like that. They would judge you. And so I thought that was really interesting to take that literal. So, you know, bridges here are 75 years behind in maintenance. They take up a lot of construction land. There's a highway where there should actually be space for flooding. So I took the bridges out, took the highways out, <laughs> and saw that MIT had an amazing track that was for automated vehicles, but also for your own vehicles. So you can also put your car on that same track. And I put that track in the middle of the river. So it was also for goods. It also replaced boats. It was for goods, for cars, for people, for everything. And the whole thing was on wave energy, which we have amazing currents here. I was very excited about our proposal. We had islands with bioenergy, uh, islands with sunflowers to um, eat up uh, pollution. You know, that was all organized in our little proposal. We had also some tourism on the islands and a private little airport with tiny vehicles, thinking taxis are going to be flying soon. Is there any place that people can see the prototype that you designed and, and what it could look yeah, like? Yeah, yeah. We have the whole movie on our website. Uh, because in so in three days, we did a design, we did a movie, we did an exhibit and uh, the whole thing. You know, we were very into this. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's all on our website. So you can find it at architectonics.com. Well, congratulations on actually winning the Asian Games 2022 project. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what that is and, and the approach that you took to that one. Yeah, so that was a fantastic opportunity. We were one of the five invited uh, groups to make a proposal for the Asian Games, 116-acre park, two stadiums, five other buildings. And, um, you know, it's one of those moments when you realize you've done so many competitions and we always end up second or third. And I thought, you can't keep repeating yourself. You know, we have to change something. And so what typically the architect hires, the landscape architect and engineers, 
um, I decided to ask them to be equal partners. So the landscape architect, Melk, um, it's a Dutch landscape architect in the same building here, and uh, Thornton Tomasetti agreed to being equal partners, which made it suddenly an amazing team of principals of companies that basically just dreamed up this uh, this proposal. And I think what the reason why we won is because we had so much fun. We had so much fun doing this. We created, we did, we broke the rules of the competition. There was um, a road separating the park into two. Sections, you're supposed to put the, the stadiums right there, but we felt then the park is the backyard of the stadium. Why would you do that? So we put the stadiums in the middle of the halves and then made something called the Valley Village, as we called it. So instead of an underground shopping mall, which is really not green, this was supposed to be a sponge city sustainable project. It's not sustainable to go on the ground. You need natural ventilation. You need natural... Uh, or hopefully, you know, through solar panels lighting. So we made it kind of a valley that goes under the road and under the river in a very Dutch move. That became the connector also of the two stadiums. And um, yeah, and then funny enough, I said, to, I remember saying to the team, if we do this, it's going to be why we win or why we lose, you know that. So we have to make this a team decision. And so we all decided to go for it. And then we won because of, because of what we did, but also because when we moved the stadium to the other location, it turned out that the big, big, big boss, that was his district. And so, and we didn't know this, right? This was a total lucky whatever. And we, we made it brass shingles and he loves gold. So there you go. It was the weirdest reason to win, but they also really loved the Valley Village Mall. So that was that was also nice. But yeah, it was also not an easy win, by the way. I think the jury had four days of fights. Because there was an easy, there was an easy proposal that would cost probably less money and would be easier to build and they were out of time. Wow. Kind of. So yeah, it was uh, either was easy or we were again <laughs> the difficult one. But it's going super well. It's almost finished already. And it's next year that it opens. So yeah, we, they're doing an amazing job. Well, I think it's sometimes beneficial to approach rules as guidelines, as opposed to something strict to follow. And congratulations on that project. Wink, I want to thank you so much for joining me here today, but I would love for you to stick around so we can have a conversation with Elliot March after I finish talking to him. Now I'd like to introduce you to Elliot March. Elliot is the founder of March and White Design, a global design firm of forward-thinking experts creating interiors for how we live, move, work, and play today. Elliot March and James White spearhead the firm with a philosophy to provide customized aesthetics for each project while committing to their initial key motivation of unpredictability and integrity. Here's a bit from Elliot on how his surfing hobby has inspired his approach to design thinking and creative processes. What's interesting for me is, is the context of instinct versus process and almost what, what leads one another when making decisions, not only in sports, but in the field of architecture and design as well. So I grew up, in, grew up in the UK, but moved to California and began surfing five or six years ago. And it's an interesting sport like 
all recreational sports that have a connection to nature. What's interesting for me is how you make decisions when you surf. A lot of people said to me, oh, when you go surfing, you must be able to switch off and be completely free in the elements of nature. Thinking about it, that's true, but there's also a process that you're going through. You know, you're constantly reading waves, you're constantly thinking about when I should go, when I should move, when I should do a certain thing. And just, I've been thinking about that in the context of what we do at March and White Design and design process as well. You know, how do we make good design decisions that, that basically generate a good outcome for our clients? Elliot, welcome. It's wonderful to see you. I'm a big fan of your work and, and love your philosophy. As the founder of March and White Design, can you tell us a little bit more about your specialization in live, work, move, and play and how they're interconnected and work with each other? Yeah, sure. It's great to be on the mic, Debbie. Thanks for introducing that. So yeah, live, weave, work, play is kind of central to what we do. We found, I guess, kind of pre-COVID that these sectors were coming together a lot more closely into interiors. And a lot of our projects were demanding that we really think about these different sectors into one holistic product as well. So the way people live, the way people kind of move and work out and perform in a space, um, the way they play within a space as well. Um, that was all kind of central to the to the idea. And we were trying to blend all of these um, into creating products that actually perform for the people that live in these spaces as well. So it was kind of a, a distillation of all these elements um, and a real thought and rationale to giving people something that just simply works better for their daily lives. And sort of where we are now sort of coming out of COVID, we still really saw all of that kind of coming together with people working and living, you know, literally in their own space and, and, and really trying to understand what that means for the, the future as well. How has the pandemic impacted the concept? I think it's accelerated it, to be honest with you. I think we saw a lot of, um, a lot of our projects, a lot of our big projects, certainly in New York as well, a lot of our clients were really thinking about what does this actually mean for interior space and what do people want to buy now since COVID is going on. So it was a real actually rewinding or thinking harder about some projects, about that whole sort of, you know, I, I wake up, you know, I do my thing, I work out, and now I'm actually going to work in this space as well, especially in some of the multifamily condominium projects that we're working on in New York. And really, what is that life cycle throughout the day? You know, where do I go? How do I feel good in different environments? How can I change the space or environment that I'm actually working within throughout the day to create, you know, a feeling of comfort and, you know, uh, performance, yeah, warmth. You're in your you know, family home as well. So that kind of accelerated how we were thinking about adjacencies and space, particularly as we sort of come out of this situation now. How does the context of instinct define or impact your design process? I think instinct is, it's something we're all born with and blessed with. And I think instinct and the way we design is a very kind of creative process. I, I like to, I do like to kind of distill this a little bit. You know, when we're, I find when I'm creative is, is when I'm out there, you know, experiencing nature, feeling very peaceful with myself. And that's where great ideas happen. Um, 
at March and White Design, we, we came up with a process called experience-centric design, which actually created a roadmap for how we design really for our clients, as opposed to just designing for ourselves. And I'm interested in that balance between creativity and spontaneity, and actually something that's more mapped out to, to really unlock and find out, you know, the parameters of design and what that actually means throughout that design process. So I think it's an interesting balance between the two. Yeah. And, and finding that perfect spot, taking both sides into account is probably, at least from my perspective, the most challenging. And I don't know if there ever is a, a perfect spot at the end of the day. We do our best to kind of bring these two worlds together, I think. I was so intrigued by the notion of surfing impacting your practice. And when did you discover your passion for surfing and adventure? And how, did, how has it influenced your decision-making process? I got into surfing when I moved from New York to, to LA. Um, yeah, we have the, the practice in New York as well. And that was really where I could connect you know, with nature, um, really firsthand. And, and living in cities all my life, um, it wasn't really available to me um, on kind of demand. And I, I really got into it here. And I guess, you know, whether it's surfing or whether it's something else, whether it's meditation, whether it's hiking, whether it's, you know, everyone has their own connection to, to, to nature and the outdoors. And for me, it was surfing. And it was just a great, I found it a great environment where I could be completely tuned in to you know to nature and away from the noise of what was going on in in the day in my daily life and creative life and that's really where you know great ideas you know I found a spawned within that kind of disconnected environment that I think we all try and you know well certainly we try and bring back to the projects and the the urbanity that we live in and design for as well and it's you know it's, it's always a balance to play with I think. You indicated in your message that the process involved in surfing has a close relationship with the design process. Tell me more. I think in surfing, it's I'm an amateur surfer. I'm gonna, you know, I will I will make that very clear. Um, but I think it's it's for me, it was really about, you know, that moment between taking a wave or that switch off moment where you're thinking, am I going to catch this wave? What's going on around me? You know, figuring out all these different moving parts. And then that ultimate moment of being on the wave and completely disconnecting from everything else that you've just thought of and being within yourself. So that was the, that was the kind of process moment. And then that, that led back to what we do as a firm and, you know, really thinking about this experience centric design approach, the philosophy that we have in March and White that really sort of sets out a, a roadmap for, for design. So again, balancing those, those two areas. Do you think that instinct, the instinct that you sort of have to rely on in surfing can be successfully translated in any way into design thinking? Is there anything we can learn from that? Yeah, I think with design, a lot is led by instinct. And this is what I was finding, you know, if I look back at about what we what we typically did as a firm and what, what I do is um, a, a lot was instinctively led. And I think instincts have got positives and negatives as well. So you can be really instinctive and decisive about what you're going to do. But I think as, as Winker was saying earlier, it's interesting when you bring a bigger team into play about you know, how do you conceive an idea and how do you follow through on that? 
And, and, and what I kind of was learning that it's great to be instinctive, but flipping that has also benefits as well. And it's really, you know, using surfing as a parallel, defining that fine line between either side of the tracks to get that perfect kind of sweet spot is, is kind of where my interest was starting to take me. So what I think is we ended up on collaboration, you know, collaborating with other design partners and design minds and even our clients as well through more of a process, I think kind of leads to interesting results as opposed to just raw, you know, talent, raw instinct, raw experience um, and leading kind of top down as it were. You mentioned experience centric design. And, and that's a term that I had not heard before uh, reading about your work and, and doing research on the types of projects that you undertake. Can you talk a little bit about how it impacts the well-being of your clients? And, and can you give us some examples of, of how you articulate that or where you've articulated that? Yeah, I mean, experience-centric design is a term we came up with, EXCD, for, for our own design philosophy and process. And for us, what was really central to designing was designing for the end user as opposed to designing for us. Yeah, a lot of other interior designers design with a an aesthetics-led approach, and I wanted it to be a client or a demographic-led approach. So I was interested in learning everything about the person or people or demographics that we were designing for. So that was kind of really at the forefront. And understanding that, I, 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 the, the firm found we could create more opportunity for um, development and more bringing more insights um, into the projects that we were designing for. And just a few examples, I think, you know, when we look at kind of commercial design into interiors, we're looking at instead of how do we make people in workplace have fun, which was the typical kind of approach to creating, you know, great workspace amenity type design, we kind of pulled that back to actual performance. So how do we make spaces perform for people so they, they can work and inhabit amenities, adjacencies, these types of things that allow them to have a better work-life balance? throughout the day. So it was less, it's been less kind of ping pong and more Peloton. And just actually getting to that has been um, understanding the people we're designing for, not just coming in with, this is the space, and it looks like this because of. So so that's been a, that, that, that's the way we, we like to design. So talk a little bit more, if you can, about this performance aspect. That's that's something I'd really love to know more about. Can you give me an example of how that works or where you've seen that to be most successful? Yeah, there's a project we're doing in Denver at the moment. It's the re-envisaging of an old IMPI building. I think it was his first high rise west of the Mississippi. Really interesting building in Denver. And the client there wanted to skew the whole project towards catering to more tech firms and a younger millennial kind of demographic. And again, there, when we started researching into that demographic, we were interested in, in about how, how those spaces had to um, not only perform, but be, it was really interesting about the adjacencies of those spaces. So we've got, you know, new types of gym space, fusing with yoga studios, fusing with private workout spaces. We actually brought in a sound bath as well to the space. So taking it a bit left field, a bit out of, um, you know, straight kind of, you know, gym space, it was really thinking about how do we, how do we calm people down as well as kind of turn them up 
well. So it was kind of managing energy in a way and allowing performance or people to access that sort of throughout the work day as well. If someone wants to come down for, a, you know, to be in that space for a sound bath, you know, in that working day, not just at lunchtime, how do they do that? If someone wants to work out at a certain time. So it's being completely flexible and really thinking about how these spaces um, work adjacent to one another as well and perform within their own right. So these types of things is, 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 is something that really kind of came out of that. Elliot, I have one last question for you before I ask Winka to come back and rejoin us. I know you have offices in LA and New York. There's surfing in both places. Do the different surfing conditions of each city influence differently? Yeah, when I couldn't feel my toes anymore, um, being in New York in the uh, in the water in kind of like midwinter, that's when I knew, yeah, it wasn't going to be for me. <laughs> 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 and the more temperate climate of California was uh, was was an easier sell. So no, it's all there. It's just uh, I guess it's how much you can you can handle. Well, thank you so much, Elliot. I'd like to ask Winka to rejoin us. I have questions I'd love to ask you both and have a little bit of a three-way conversation. So I know that both of you are are really committed to the idea of living well and architecture supporting that. What are your personal definitions of living well? And how do you adapt the notion both professionally and translate it then into design? I know it's a big question to sort of push you on both, but I'd really love to know. I'm very curious. Your personal definition of living well and how you adapt this notion professionally. Let's go with Winka first since she hasn't been with us for a few minutes. I think it is gratitude, postponing judgment, but really understanding life as open and just be curious and not judge and not as much as you can, right? I'm, I'm not perfect, but I think that's really the start for me to just look at situations as, hey, yeah, this is happening, so let's deal with this. And then the other side, as I said, I work out a lot and I uh, meditate and do yoga. So, I mean, there is some tools uh, also. But I think on a larger level, to really understand those weekends, to be kind of for rest and relaxation, to understand. For our office, we think it's really important that they get a rest. We we believe in people working for us long time, so they need to um, have a good life and also to kind of organize lectures and learning and things for them so that they feel inspired. And yeah, we think teamwork is really important, so... After competitions, we have a little massage chair and we ask the massage person to come in, like little things. You know, I think wellness really is in little things. I have a feeling uh, your your website is yeah. going to yeah. get quite a lot of traffic in <laughs> the uh, career yeah. section. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Suddenly it's like, oh, that place is about massage chairs, really. Elliot, what about you? Can you talk a little bit about how you translate living well into design and also your personal definition? Yeah, I think my personal definitions are, I think I said a, a lot earlier about, I think just being good in yourself to be able to deliver that to others. I think that's kind of like the first principle. And then, you know, living well is, you know, I really think about it holistically in terms of design as well. So yeah, living well and what that means. And, and certainly there's a whole kind of movement towards more sustainable design coming through into, you know, not, not only interiors, but architecture as well. And, um, 
you know, trying to convey some of that to the wider audience and the people that, um, you know, uh, buy our designs and, um, you know, trying to move towards that as well. So I think uh, educating is probably the wrong word, but I think kind of showcasing living well is something we can actually do as designers, which I'm, you know, which I'm interested in. I think I could definitely stay in some of your, of your spaces and feel better. <laughs> when we're thinking about the last year that we've had and in thinking about what that means for gathering and spaces and healthy living for the future, how do you think that this current situation is going to impact the landscape of what it means to be an architect or a designer? Is the criteria going to be changed at all? Has it already? I think what was really beautiful is is that we learned to stand still and observe, you know, to just stop and to really rethink how you work, um, what you want to do in the future, how you want to organize your life. I think everyone uh, really had a major reflection period and... Um, and I thought it was, in a weird way, a very sweet period. I'm the chair of an architecture program, and I made a, a call-in hour on Tuesdays for uh, any students to call in and to just chat, no agenda. You know, you wanted to chat, you felt lonely, you felt happy, you felt whatever, to just check in and uh, hang out with us. And it was one of the the sweetest things, and it was the, the funny thing is it helped me a lot as well, you know, because it was just a moment where you couldn't, really look at how everyone is doing. And we we literally cried and laughed a lot. You know, it was like a very sweet and, and endearing thing. And I think last year was extremely difficult and very heavy on everyone. But I think we learned a lot from it as well. Elliot, what about you? Yeah, I think I, I kind of echo a lot of what Winker was saying. We had a lot of clients just calling us up saying, why, why, am I, why was I living like this? Um, and um, what do I need now to change the way I live? Because I think I know, but I'm not quite sure. And, you know, I think because, as Winker was saying, everyone almost took the time to stand still and reconsider what were the important drivers to their lifestyle. The interesting thing, well, how were those drivers, how did that then affect space and particularly their home? Because everyone was spending and still continues probably to spend a lot of their time in their home. So really thinking about the how do we convert space? How do we make it, again, perform better within the existing confines of, of what they have? So well, I think people do want to you know, live more consciously and live well i think going back to this sort of lifestyle which was completely i think out of control for a lot of people it's just a more groundedness i think to to the to, to what we're seeing how do you impart a sense of responsibility among young architects that can help them become better designers of and for a healthier future Winka, why don't you go first since since you're you spend a lot of time in academia? Yeah, as the chair, I indoctrinate everyone. <laughs> um, that is definitely true. You know what I think is very important for me. Um, I I think uh, architects are, are pushed in the corner, and maybe that counts a little bit for for you too, uh, Elliot. Is we're very often pushed in the corner of just designers, and they underestimate the amount of research, the amount of uh, 
project developments, R&D, uh, prototyping, uh, robotic manufacturing, uh, future ways of fabricating, we do. And I often say to uh, the students, it's 10% design and 90% figuring out better and more interesting ways to get things built. And the way I do that at uh, Penn is by um, just really hiring fabulous people. You know, I... It's, it's nice to be in the university. So we have people from the ETH for robotic manufacturing and smart geometries or person from London who was an expert in robotics or we just hired someone from MIT that's a material scientist. And they're all architects, right? People don't realize often in the US, I think, how, how much research-based architects actually are. And so my mission, my small mission in life is through academics to really put that out in the world and to give our students like huge underpinning as really scientists that can design, you know, like, and that is really the architecture profession. We are not designers only, you know, design is important and design excellence will always be important, you know, and I stand for that. We didn't become an engineering school, let's say. But at the same time, you know, it has to be underbuilt by great arguments and awareness of where we are, where society is, where the environment is, and how can we, through research and design, figure out a better way to, to live in it. What do you think, Elliot? A lot of younger people come to the practice and they are, you know, sometimes they're not, they're not very grounded. They need, they need a roadmap how they're going to progress and learn and we you know we do interior design we do interior architecture and i for us we go back to kind of some core values yeah one is teams spark great ideas and that's really you know teaching younger people how to work in a team and the benefits of a team as opposed to just the eye all the time the other one is design for the greater good so again the whole wellness, sustainability elements that we can bring into our projects and using that as this kind of cloud that allows them to work within a framework or structure and under, hopefully pick up some of these ideas that when they leave us, they can take to their own practice or to another practice, but really filtering that. And the third thing is, I always say to, to, to the people that have joined us is do one thing really well. And, and, and this is, you know, it's one of our core values as a practice and to figure out what that is and, and to take it, you know, a step at a time and to really kind of nail that skill or skill set that they can then progress as they move on. So it's kind of a combination of things driven by a set of values that we hope to sort of impart onto them. What could be one thing for designers listening to today's episode where they can begin to think about how they could be more mindful of their role in creating a healthier future through design. One thing. Winka, what, what about you? I Get see you're, you're ready car. to ready to <laughs> pounce on the mic. I just got my Tesla. <laughs> you like the question, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, no, get an electric car. You know, it's a beautiful movie. I think I don't remember when it was, but you saw it also probably. It's like, you know, what whatever happened to the electric car, I remember like years ago. They had an electric car and, and, and the country, the world wasn't ready for it. So it disappeared myster mysteriously and they made a movie of this. So I think in this time and age, everyone should think the smallest things help. Get an electric car, put a solar panel somewhere. Don't accept plastic ever. Don't, you know, Tupperware, maybe, you know, what was it? The 60s or something. 
get Tupperware back in your life and carry everything around. And I think, you know, I'm trying to do my best. I did with uh, my class once a week. No waste at all. We had to organize so many things. It was amazing. And I really changed through that week. You know, the amount of... You needed to bring a cup to Starbucks and you needed to wash the cup and then put the cup in your bag. It was like a lot to remember. And it was actually interesting that it took awareness more than anything. Yeah, it is It is a commitment that you make not only to the environment, yeah. but really to yourselves. Yeah, exactly. And to us all as, as a group of right, humans. to the world. Yeah. Elliot, what about yeah. you? Any Any ideas for one thing a designer can do to create a healthier future. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna segue off what, what, what Winker just said there about waste, and I think this is absolutely central to what we do as designers, and certainly us as interior designers. We're currently designing our own sustainable furniture collection at the moment, and looking at products that perform differently that are sustainable. So this is a real kind of development for the firm that we're bringing some of the younger designers in to assist on as well. And I think being absolutely conscious about the amount of waste we put into products that we design or produce, um, I, I couldn't, I can, you know, make the argument as, as strong as I can. It's something that I think more and more younger people are aware of this, but I think actually following through on some initiatives to kind of cement that or to say, look, this is what we can do and have to have a small impact into what is a huge industry. Um, if you take furniture as an example of waste and products and packaging and transportation and place of production, these things, I think we can have an impact, but we've got to start small and it's, it's the same in different industries. But I think as Winker was saying about the electric car or the solar panel, it's starting small and going from there and I think that's what we can impart as sort of slightly older people or an older generation to the uh, to the table one last question how long do you think it'll be before we're all driving electric cars and we're all refusing plastic GM are supposed to be going you know all electric by 2025 I think 2026 which was bringing that whole thing forward by a half, you know, by five years. It was going to be a decade before GM started going all electric. So I think having these huge automobile manufacturers actually delivering on their word and seeing actually that there is a market for this now, it's not just going to be product development waste. It, there's a market for this. I think it's going to be a massive game changer. And I've got my Tesla as well. I can side with Winkler. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think it's uh, it's actually faster than we think. I think what is you know the more the climate goes crazy, you know the three storms that just hit the south of the U.S. How sad is that? These poor people. I mean, losing this much in such a short time. I think it makes us all realize, you know, there is no more time. We need to do this now. There is. If we get over 20 years, it has to happen now. I literally thought this is it. I'm not doing it anymore. I'm, I'm electrical, and if I have to stand next to the road without any whatever, and I have to push my Tesla, so be it. <laughs> you know, like it's gonna be my life. So I think that's a, it's it's kind of the climate that that tells us when to do what. And I think by looking at what's going on, it should be clear that this has to happen. You know, today. Forget twenty years. Forget thirty. These plannings are the planning is, and and that is the beauty also that many cities are doing the same exact, I think, you know, I've often thought it, 
the guidance for us is not so much in the country government, but in, in the local city governments. And cities are really changing it fast. And um, that's worldwide. You know, several cities worldwide have, you know, there's a group of mayors worldwide that are taking decisions on that level. And they're, they, they basically, as a group, have taken that decision of going much faster than the countries have decided. And also because I think cities are less bound to politics. They are more into the real wellness of people and the, the local interests, whereas countries are much more, you know, political issues. And, uh, and if you can get rid of those, I think you can move faster. Well, thank you both so much for this optimistic way of thinking about our future. I really, truly believe that this is possible if we all work towards this together. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk living well. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie, for having Thank us. Thank you. We hope this conversation helped you recognize the importance of creating environments that define our processes and shape our well-being. As we work towards a happier, healthier world, it's imperative to leverage the power of design to shape environments that bring comfort and well-being to ourselves and our communities and our world. Through creative collaboration and care, we really can build a future that nurtures wellness, serenity, and health for all. Thank you again, Winka Doubledam and Elliot March for joining us today. Want to talk design with me on the next episode of The Mic? We can't wait to hear your design story. Share it in the form of a voice message at nycbydesign.com. And join me next month to talk nurturing nature. Follow at NYC by design on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to the newsletter to be the first to find out about our next month's featured guests and the latest in New York design. It's time to share this month's featured voice messages. Join us at the end of each episode to hear additional design stories from talented members of New York's creative community that have shared their inspiration with us. Today, we are hearing from Alessia Genova, Paul Condor, and Kylie Roth. Alicia Genova is the managing director of Tihani Design, a New York-based design firm that is known around the globe for creating unique luxury interior design for hotels and restaurants. Alicia's strength in concept and presentation development draws from her passion for identifying the story behind each design project and bringing the vision to life for clients. Let's hear Alicia's thoughts on what good design means and how it translates to living well. Others have seen what is and ask why. I have seen what could be and ask why not. I have quoted Picasso to underline the importance of going beyond, understand and respond with unique approaches. So let's start with understanding what living well means. Is it healthy living? environmentally responsible, being charitable, respectful to your fellow humans, or is more hedonistic, enjoying the good thing in life, surrounded by beautiful things, by good and meaningful design? What does good design mean and how it translates to living well? Well, my vision starts with sharing Paul Rand philosophy. Good design is about adding value and meaning. 
Paul Condor is the vice president of Kalazin RTKL, a design and architecture firm that creates memorable and successful environments for developers, retailers, investors, institutions, and public entities. In his voice message, Paul shares his thoughts on the rapid digital transformation that has happened over the last year and its influence on design processes. The pandemic has brought tragedy and hardship to people around the world, but as with many awful moments in history, it's also been an accelerator for change. It doesn't matter what sector you're talking about, from hospitality to retail to healthcare, the transformation that was already underway as businesses adopted digital means to reach their user base has often been the deciding factor in whether that business has survived. The challenges people are facing now are more complex and more urgent than many of our systems are able to manage. In the design professions, we are still incredibly siloed, delineated based on means of production that are often centuries old. Architects make buildings, industrial designers make products, developers make things like apps and websites. The problems of today and tomorrow aren't going to align themselves that way. To remain relevant now and after this crisis has passed, design itself is evolving. We were seeing this shift for several years, but similarly to the different sectors I mentioned before, the change is accelerated. The new design embraces technologies and human centricity like industrial design, it's scrappy and agile like software design, and is detail-oriented like architecture. Kylie Roth is the Vice President of Research at Knoll, a design firm that creates spaces that support the way we live and work today. Their internationally recognized portfolio includes furniture, textiles, leathers, lighting, accessories, and architectural and acoustical elements. As a researcher and design professional, Kylie has been studying and designing workspaces for over 15 years. In her voice message, Kylie shares the importance of people in our lives and in our work, and how we can reimagine spaces to encourage human connection and interaction. Lately, as I've spent so much time in quarantine, I've been mulling over this idea about the importance of people in our lives but especially in our work. I'm Kylie Roth, and I've been studying and designing workplaces for over 15 years. I currently work at Knoll, where I lead research. And since April, I've hosted roundtables with more than 250 clients and design professionals across North America. And the one thing that comes up over and over in our conversation is how to support gathering. Even before the pandemic, we knew the importance of togetherness. It can be seen in the rise of co-working spaces. Co-working was born out of employees not wanting to work from home and seeking connection. In our research, we've even determined that one of the main things individuals do within co-working spaces is what we call alone together work. It's the idea that we go to a busy place to feel the buzz, get the connection to people, but we remain independent in our work. Research has even shown that having a best friend at work is one of the keys to engagement, happiness, and retention. Many people have predicted the death of the office, restaurants, or even other social spaces. But in my work, I only see it as a reinvention. These spaces have already started to reimagine their physical environments to bring people together. Take what the Rockwell Group is doing in New York to extend existing restaurants onto the streets, or how workplaces are moving away from open office concepts to more neighborhood-style planning. 
Our design challenge of the last decade was how to densify spaces. The challenge of today is to rethink our spaces to make them more adaptable in their usage, accommodate a more hyper-nomadic individual, and bring people together in new and in interesting ways. Thank you for joining us today on NYC by Designs of the Mic. Let's talk design again next month.